0: Good evening, you're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM, HD1, Emerson, Chicago. I'm Micah Sandi, and this is WNUR News six Tonight, with the action ahead of the Ryan Field demolition, we learn more on how climate activists manage burnout in the midst of varying environmental threats. How Gypsy Rose Blanchard is using her platform to tell her side of the story after being released from prison and to dive into the challenges of queer dating on campus ahead of Valentine's Day. Those stories and more coming up from Northwestern University, this is WNUR News at 6. As Northwestern prepares for the Ryan Field demolition, the university's environmental impact has once again sparked action. How do climate activists manage burnout when grappling with environmental threats ranging from the local to the global? Paul O'Connor has the story
1: of climate psychology defines climate anxiety as a quote, heightened emotional, mental, or somatic distress in response to dangerous changes in the climate system. The American Psychological Association describes it as a quote, chronic fear of environmental doom. Although not typically discussed in conversations surrounding climate activism and policy, it's widely considered to be a serious, intangible health-related impact of climate change. Here's a young climate activist named Layla in conversation with NBC's Julie Serkin.
2: How do you define
3: climate anxiety? The understanding that things are changing really rapidly around me right now, and I don't necessarily have full control over what happens to me uh, or what my future looks like.
1: These sorts of feelings can cause burnout for activists. Talking about Key's feelings after gaining few concessions surrounding Northwestern's fossil fuel endowment Muhammad describes how Key started feeling detached from the process of activism.
4: I think I just bit, had been a little bit kind of jaded. The response we get that didn't really include fossil free in the process, they just kind of responded to all of our organizing is was like so weak and isn't really going to make much of a tangible impact. And um, just kind of feeling disillusioned by endowment, which felt like kind of one of the key areas to like make an impact.
1: And the impacts of eco-anxiety don't look the same for everyone. Anusha Kumar, a second year SESPI student and member of Fossil Free Northwestern, talks about how eco-anxiety might especially affect lower income or non-white students or residents.
4: The mental health impacts of that are especially clear for people who identify as like marginalized because it, it is those communities who are facing the biggest impacts of climate change and who are seeing the impacts of like environmental racism and things like that um, in their own communities.
1: TikTok creator Wawa Gatheru extends this equating climate change and eco-anxiety and that they both disproportionately affect marginalized communities and especially black communities due to systemic factors.
5: Communities of color and particularly black ones are more vulnerable than white ones to sea level rise, wildfire and heat waves linked to climate change. All while having fewer avenues to really access often life-saving resources.
1: Muhammad and Kumar also discuss how climate activism can be particularly draining at the university level both in terms of how decisions are made at an institution like Northwestern as well as the struggles of being an activist in college.
4: When you like think about like even things like divestment It's not really like the Board of Investors who are making those decisions. It's the Board of Trustees who have complete control over basically like everyone in the Northwestern community. And then like you take a look at like who's on the Board of Trustees and it's like, oh, it's a lot of white males and a lot of people with power and people who are wealthy and people who are like alumni. How would I even go about changing that? There are very few seniors that I have ever seen involved in organizing. And I think a lot of it has to do with with burnout. Like, you've been doing this for three years and you haven't gotten the things you wanted to see.
1: But Jack Jordan, part of Northwestern's graduating class of 2022 and current member of Climate Action Evanston, says that student activism offered some of the most impactful opportunities for activism he's found.
6: There are many more avenues for activism as a student than there are when you're in a, real world. And I think a key part of that is that there are avenues for local activism. Because local activism, that's what, students are doing at Northwestern, what um, students at every university are doing, these are, these are actions they're taking in their own backyard, um, with the university essentially being their almost local government.
1: Kumar echoes this, saying that students' investment in a college community can offer them a special role in shaping its culture and policy
4: at least when you are an undergraduate student specifically and you are paying tuition at the school in some way, you have a unique power to create change and to disrupt systems in a way that no other stakeholder at a university can. People have so much agency, and especially when you are a student, there's so much power with that.
1: Joel Freeman, co-chair of Climate Action Evanston, says thinking about small action offers him way forwards through burnout and anxiety.
7: People think that just because they're an individual, they can't have an impact. And I try and remind them look, you didn't elect president or well, a whole giant group of people. Did. And, you know, when it comes to, like, the example of electric vehicles, you know, one person doesn't change the industry, but a whole group of people can transform the marketplace.
1: Jack Jordan echoes this, saying that thinking at the local or community level is how he takes action without feeling overwhelmed.
4: Through my local activism, most of my actions seem to the situation. I, have, I can I notice change at a rate that's like satisfying to me, as opposed to the university where it's like this highly hierarchical power structure where kind of the university is sort of in charge of everything, and you are just a student activist, you kind of feel like an ant trying to move mountains. At the community level, it's kind of like you're more in a sandbox.
1: And Muhammad is hoping to find opportunities at the local level as well as key transitions beyond the university ecosystem.
4: A lot of the work that I've done at university has been thinking about an institution. The work that I want to do, kind of career-wise, is more interested in, well, what can we as a community create? At college institutions where there's not that long-term commitment, we're going to be out of here in four years, it's kind of hard to build things, and time is just the biggest difficulty of being a student organizer, especially here at Northwestern, where everyone's doing a million and a half things. That's going to be a difference that I am excited
1: for. For WNUR News, I'm Paul (laughs) O'Connor.
0: Gypsy Rose Blanchard was released from prison at the end of 2023, after spending eight years behind bars for murdering her mother. Now she's using social media to tell her side of the story for the very first time. Brandon Condritz reports.
6: I advised that this story contains discussion of murder, child abuse, and mental illness that some listeners may find upsetting.
2: Hey everyone, this is Gypsy. I'm finally free.
6: Gypsy Rose Blanchard is free after spending eight years behind bars for the 2015 murder of her mother, Dee Dee. And it's something the internet has been looking forward to for a long time.
2: We were born sick. And I hear screaming. Because he is spending the rest of his life.
6: Let's take a step back.
2: It is the perfect town. The perfect place.
6: Gypsy Rose was born in 1991 in Golden Meadow, Louisiana, and she and her mother later moved to Springfield, Missouri. To their community, they were a normal family who had experienced immense hardship. Gypsy had various physical and mental disabilities. Muscular dystrophy left her wheelchair bound. Brain damage meant she had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old. Epilepsy, digestive tract issues, and hearing and vision impairment meant she was in and out of surgery and spent most of her time at doctor's appointments. Through it all, though, they remained hopeful. But there's one problem. None of it was real. And I want to start off with saying things are not always as they appear. Gypsy Rose is a victim of fictitious disorder imposed upon another, previously referred to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Essentially, Dee Dee told her daughter from a young age that she was sick. She needed a wheelchair, she needed to see the doctor, and so on, even though she was perfectly healthy. Dee Dee controlled every aspect of Gypsy's life. But as Gypsy got older, she began to push back against her mother's authority, meeting her then-boyfriend Nicholas Godijan online. Gypsy said in interviews that she felt there was only one way she could free herself from her abusive mother. Gypsy and Godijan hatched a plan and carried it out. They murdered Dee Dee in June 2015. After the murder, Gypsy and Godijan were both sentenced to prison. The community that once loved Gypsy and Dee Dee was conflicted, As they discovered for the first time, the sick girl they knew wasn't sick, and her mother had defrauded doctors and neighbors alike. Godijan was the one who carried out the crime. He was charged with first-degree murder and is spending life behind bars. But Gypsy's time is over. She was charged with second-degree murder for a reduced role in the plot. She served eight years of her 10-year sentence and was released on parole December 28th.
8: Yeah, no, I've known about her for a long time. I've definitely seen a couple of documentaries about her family dynamic many years ago. So, which I don't think is like shockingly the case for the vast majority of people who are just now talking about her online, which I find super interesting because I feel like they're, they get, they become surprised when they realize the full narrative.
6: That's Liz Casolo, a Medill Jr. In the month since Gypsy's release, she's taken to social media, TV, podcasts, and more to tell her story. But like Casolo said, the majority of the internet doesn't know the true extent of the abuse Gypsy endured.
8: I think the problem has to do with the fact that people are placing really unreasonable expectations on someone who's been so isolated from society for so long and so when people don't know her full story and they're surprised and they communicate that online it's just like a a little bit of a an upsetting thing to do like you couldn't choose to inform yourself on such a big case if you're going to be speaking about it publicly because then that just you know, could propagate misinformation.
6: It seems like Gypsy is enjoying making videos, participating in interviews, and telling her side of the story for the first time. She posted a selfie on Instagram the day she got out, captioned, first selfie of freedom. She regularly makes OOTDs for her fans on TikTok, and she had her first television interview post-release with ABC's 2020 last Saturday. But there's concern. Casolo and others say it might be too much, too fast.
8: I have seen a couple of dialogues online about people who are genuinely concerned about people placing really high expectations for her online behavior and worshipping her, essentially. I mean, she's been in the public space for a while, but she hasn't been out of prison for very long. I think that's a really intense level of scrutiny to live under.
6: All of the Gypsy Rose content floating around raises an important question. Why do we find her story interesting? Legal studies and American studies professor Nicolette Bruner suggests it may be because we've never heard anything like it before.
2: I will say there are some aspects of this story that are compelling because they transgress a lot of our accepted norms in provocative ways. So, for example, the idea that a a mother could be deliberately sickening her child, the idea like, oh, the mama bearer who's protecting her child, who's standing up for her child, and then to find out that that was a complete inversion, that instead somebody who's being described as the, I believe they described as something like the cognitive ability of a seven-year-old or something like that, is actually a, a mentally competent adult like you or I. I mean, it's shocking, and we are drawn to shock.
6: Shock is a common thread that weaves through Gypsy's story, Everything from the initial murder to the revelation that she wasn't sick, all the way to today. When she's becoming the internet's newest celebrity, she has around eight million followers on Instagram and just under ten million on TikTok.
2: I think that the story was initially interesting because at first it was, oh, you know, a disabled child in danger. To of what happened here, how were we all so wrong? How were so many people for so many years so wrong? And now I think not only is it kind of the brson of hearing from a convicted murderer, but I think it's also the fact that she gets to speak and we get to listen. Made particularly poignant by the fact that this is a person who was not allowed to speak and not treated as if she had anything to say.
6: America is listening to Gypsy. She's created a six-episode lifetime docuseries where she connected her past to the present. A new start with her husband, Ryan Anderson. But just because America's listening doesn't mean everyone supports her. She recently said this in an interview with podcast host, Nick Ball.
2: I don't wanna have to remind people every single time that I'm not the one that committed the act of the kill. So, you know, I'm a part of it, but in the state of Missouri, there's no such thing as accessory to murder. So technically they couldn't charge charge me with accessory because that that charge doesn't
5: exist.
6: And it hasn't landed well on social media.
5: All before she got out of prison, I saw everybody was so excited for her to get out of prison why now i started seeing people turning against her on tiktok and i was like whoa i did not expect this and so i'm sure that's like different demographics of people but that was really interesting to me because it feels like i mean honestly it was like those people probably just want to hate on her to some extent but all people were saying like oh well she's a murderer people were just like have like totally different opinions than what I had seen really anybody saying before she got out of prison.
6: That's Weinberg sophomore Ruth DeBono. They said even though there's some gypsy rose hate swirling around online, consensus is that if she's okay with sharing, we're okay with listening. And many fans say this type of attention isn't new for her either. She's been on camera since she was a kid.
5: I'm sure in some ways it's different because, I mean, she appears to have a little bit more like agency over all of that, but I'm also sure that kind of like having that like in her childhood of like having the cameras on her a lot then and then going to prison and still having the cameras, like I'm sure that probably also like influenced her in terms of like, that's like kind of, I don't know, that might even be something that's kind of just feels like comfortable and natural to her.
6: For now, it looks like Gypsy is enjoying the spotlight and the internet is along for the ride. Her most recent achievement? Making national entertainment news for cutting her hair and donating it to a foundation that makes wigs for people with cancer. She posted a TikTok shortly after.
2: Hey y'all, so as many of you probably already saw, last night I cut my hair.
6: But above all, she's encouraging her fans to stick around.
2: Again, just thank you guys for all the support and uh, keep watching, okay, bye.
6: For WNUR News, I'm Brandon Kondritz.
0: It's officially February, which means Valentine's Day is right around the corner. But if you're queer on campus, it might be tougher for you to find somebody to spend a day with than your straight friends. Brandon Kondritz and Juliet Allen set out to unpack the quirks and challenges of queer dating at Northwestern in today's Oddity Story.
7: To come with me to like Home Depot, to, like get some boxes or something, and then we were just like the strict friend vibes only, homies vibes only, and we're like in the car, and she's about to leave, and she's just like, "Can I kiss you? Would that be weird?" And I was like, "No, it would not be weird." And we smooched, but it was like la la la, just as friends though. Like it was really, it was really silly. It was really goofy, silly. Let me know if I'm talking too much. No, that letonic
6: story,
3: kissing in the Home Depot.
7: <laughs> is...
6: That's the most lesbian thing I've ever heard. was <laughs> really <Hawaii>. gay. I'm... <laughs> That this sounds like, like it's like the plot of a Netflix original. Like, oh yeah, we kissed in the, in the lumberyard. Like, <laughs>
3: <laughs> but did she kiss me as a friend? <laughs> that is, that is...
6: Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Juliet. And, and being gay, gay is complicated.
3: complicated.
6: Of course, you couldn't pay us to be straight. But between realizing you're gay, coming out, and trying to do math, it's safe to say that being queer has its quirks.
3: But we're not here to talk statistics. Let's talk dating. It's a big, complicated part of life, and it can be even harder when you're gay. We would know.
6: So Juliet and I are sitting down, spilling it all in the dining hall style, to unpack what it's like for queer people to date on campus, starting with arguably one of the biggest challenges, the search.
3: In this podcast, we'll be chatting with real-life gay wildcats, having some discussions as gay wildcats ourselves, and hearing from a queer relationship expert.
6: Let's get into it. After chatting with our various queer cohorts, we've narrowed down the nuances of finding other queer people to date into two categories. Our first, the meet-cute.
7: My name is Mia Vandemark. I am in the School of Communications. I'm a theater major, and I'm from Houston, Texas, baby, as Beyoncé m- might say.
6: <laughs> Mia met her girlfriend, Lauren, in a theater class. They floated in the same orbit for a while, just as peers, until they were cast in a show together last spring.
7: You know, as cast members do, kind of getting closer and getting to know each other, I think she said something really funny at one point during, like, Tech Week, and I was like, Lauren, we would have been best friends in high school, is what I said to her.
3: Mia and Lauren got closer, eventually kissing, very platonically, of course, at Home Depot. They spent a couple of months apart over the summer, but reunited when their show took them to Scotland.
7: So then we went to Scotland and the vibes are like, the vibes are crazy. Because we're just very like, you know when like the line between female friendship and lesbianism is like, there is no line. It's, it's fog.
6: After one dramatic night, which ended in a grand romantic confession, Mia and Lauren started exploring a romantic relationship. But they didn't put a label on it until October.
7: But we started dating officially on um, my birthday, actually, is when she asked me to be um, her girlfriend, which, we, which is the night we went to see Sammy Ray. Um Which
3: I confess that I did know about this.
7: <gasps> oh my goodness. Who told you? We Don't you worry about it. it? <laughs> 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 we we say our like anniversary is August 4th because we really have been like very much so together since that night. But um, yeah, that's the very long, convoluted story of how we started dating.
3: In case you're unfamiliar with lesbian culture, we've truly hit a lot of its cornerstones with this story. We've got the slow burn and the friends to lovers arc, but we also talked about what I affectionately call the lesbian love circle. That's the way seemingly every queer woman on campus is connected somehow. Whether through dating, mutual exes, mutual hookups, mutual friends, you get it. Here's what Mia had to say about that experience regarding Lauren's past connections.
7: I know she's like been involved with like people on this or girls on this campus and then like they're just like it's in the past and they're like they're they're just friends now and they're just like everything's cool and I still find that to be crazy a little bit not because I'm like jealous or anything but because in any experience like I've had in the past with with guys it's like if we're like involved and then we're not anymore we are not speaking anymore but that's kind of like not the thing with queer women because it's like most of the time you're like good friends before anything ever happens I would say most of the time so I've kind of seen that like through her perspective, because like I've I like see like one of the people that she's been involved with like every day, and I'm like that's
3: crazy that we're all just like. Th-
6: that's a great question. <laughs> Elaborate on that.
3: That's Craig Carroll. His three and a half years of exploring queer dating on campus have happened mostly online, specifically an app called Grinder, and I feel like that's a fairly common option for gay men on campus, right, Brandon?
6: Yeah, it is. If you're not familiar with Grinder, it's like an Instagram explore page for gay men. Its reputation among the community isn't for relationships. It's for hookups. On one hand, Grindr places much of Northwestern's gay male community at students' fingertips. But on the other, it can be a little like the Wild West.
3: Or Brokeback Mountain.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny. It's a scary place. And it's not for the faint of heart. And I have a
6: lot of gay friends that are like, oh, I could never. I would never go on grinder. Craig says the main complication is the common assumption that gay men on Grindr share. It's all about sex.
0: But I think that that sort of stereotype of the relationship dynamics is
6: so true and really reveals a lot about like, maybe men are genuinely like sexually driven people, or at least we are socialized to be more sexually driven and maybe women are socialized to be more romantically driven. And I think it's a symptom
4: of the dynamics of the gay male
6: community and it also exacerbates them at the same time.
3: So, I'm a lesbian. Thanks for sharing.
6: We definitely did not know that. In case you were wondering, I'm a gay man.
3: Awesome. Glad we got that out of the way. My point is that I learned a lot about Grinder over the course of this interview.
6: And I learned what a sapphic is, among other things. Thanks, Juliet.
3: You're so welcome. From an outsider perspective, though, it seems like the crux of it is, and this is not shocking, it's complicated.
6: And that brings us all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? Being gay is complicated.
3: But it's also just the best thing ever, isn't it? There were so many moments of queer joy, shared experiences, and laughter in our interviews.
6: Which were done in a literal closet, by the way. It really serves as a reminder that we call it the queer community for a reason.
7: I think I did know that I was gay when I was a lot, a lot younger, when I was like maybe 14, 15. And I think I like wrote something, mm, something in my diary that my mom read my diary. And she was like, yo. (laughs) She was like, what's going on? I was like, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not gay. And then I sealed that chapter of my life for
4: I mean, five we years. had a lot to talk
7: about. <laughs> yeah, you and me, we need to We need to coffee.
4: <laughs> we were
6: only officially dating for nine days. The way I like to tell people that is that Glee was like our show. I've only seen eight episodes of Glee. You're not missing much.
3: That's you're not missing much. So. That's a really gay measure.
6: In summary... Be safe, enjoy yourself, and don't forget about Home Depot's romantic potential. Or do. For WNUR News, I'm Brandon
0: Condrits
3: and I'm Juliet Allen.
0: And now it's time for Fairweather Friends, your weekly weather forecast into the local and national weather. We're just halfway through the winter quarter, but there might not be much wintry cold left, so stay tuned. From Evanston, Illinois, this is Fairweather Friends. Meow. <laughs> The
7: weather.
0: Today marks the first Fairweather Friends segment for February, and the weather has been. improving? Last week was a bit suspicious, as we enjoyed the double digits after chilling cold and wind chill warnings, but it was indeed not too good to be true. This week started off with some very Hollywood levels of fog, and while it was mostly cloudy, we enjoyed a nice sunny day yesterday with a high of 52 to kick off the month. If you think you misheard me, you didn't. 52 degrees Fahrenheit. So, what are we looking at for this week? This weekend will be mostly sunny with highs around 39 degrees, some wind here and there, and only a few clouds to block the sun and the stars. Similar patterns throughout the week with more clouds from Monday through Wednesday for your Monday-Wednesday classes. We'll see highs at around 50 on Wednesday, despite the clouds, which will let you drop a few layers but don't ditch your umbrella just yet. Yep, we have some expected showers for Thursday and Friday, but we'll still have some nice highs of around 50. Spring showers bring May flowers, but Micah, it isn't spring. Well, one groundhog says otherwise. Today marks Groundhog Day, and Chicago groundhog Woodstock Willie didn't see his shadow, forecasting an early spring. Will his word hold true? Well. You'll find out on Fridays when you tune into Fairweather Friends. That's all for this week's edition of Fairweather Friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, stay dry and enjoy the sun. In Evanston, Illinois, Micah Sandy, WNUR News. Taking a look into the headlines in Evanston, Chicagoland, and across the nation and globe. Northwestern basketball coach Chris Collins got a fine and a public reprimand after violating the league's sportsmanship policy at last Wednesday's game. Woodstock Willie, Chicago's groundhog, sees a shadow, signaling spring weather coming soon. U.S. retaliatory strikes started in Iraq and Syria in response to the recent Jordan drone attack. That's all for WNR News at 6pm. For more news updates and reports, Follow us on X at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 893. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNUR News.org. That's WNUR News dot org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Amelia Donhauser and our reporters are Juliet Allen, Brennan Condritz, Paul O'Connor and myself. I'm Micah Sandy. Catch our next newscast next Monday, February 5th. Now, back to scheduled programming.